James chapter 4. James chapter 4 is where we'll be and um, James is just this wonderful letter. I hope you've enjoyed our study so far. Um, Written to scattered Jewish Christians and his focus is on the effects of true saving faith. As us who have our faith in Christ, what should our lives look like? How should we live? This faith that we have in Christ, what impact should that have on our day-to-day lives? And just like everything in the Bible, this gets addressed to us on an individual level and a corporate level. Individually, what should our lives look like? How should our faith impact our lives individually? But also the church is critically important. The body of Christ is such an important thing. So corporately, together, What should the life of the church look like? And those things, the individual life of the believer and the health and life of the church, by God's design, are completely um, entangled, completely connected. And in chapter 4, it's been a few weeks, it's been three weeks now since we've been here in James, and so I'll give us a little bit of a refresher because the beginning of chapter 4 ties very much into what we'll be looking at this morning. But in James chapter 4, he turns his attention to interpersonal relationships within the church. How we treat each other, how we love each other within the church. And all of us have relationships and interpersonal relationships in all different areas of life, right? And when it comes to relationships, you name any area of society and any area of life and relationships can be challenging, right? Um, Think about work, think about your workplace. Is there ever, I don't know where you all work, is there ever any interpersonal conflict amongst people? Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit. I know, and I, I, I love the place I work, it's a great place, but There's interpersonal conflict, right? When you think of the business environment, the corporate world, it's a competitive world. It's a competitive environment. Everybody is really fighting for their own place. Everybody is seeking their own glorification, their own prominence. How much money can they get for themselves? How much prestige can they get for themselves? How much authority and power can they get for themselves? So, If you work in any sort of business or corporate environment, you see this. You see the interpersonal conflict that comes from their personal ambitions, right? People's desire to have more causes them to step on others, to knock others over and try to dominate others. Does this happen in politics a little bit? You see the political landscape out there? It happens in politics, right? It shouldn't surprise us that The political world is a nasty, poisonous world because it is, again, people competing for self-glorification, for power, for dominance, and money, right? And so given what is at at stake, it shouldn't surprise us that the political world can be filled with corruption in a poisonous, hostile world, right? So when we look at just different areas in the world around us and the fact that we live in a sinful fallen world full of sin and full of unregenerate people, it shouldn't surprise us that sinful attitudes of pride and selfish ambition so often dominate. It should be exactly what we expect in the world. But what about the church? How should people in the church love and serve one another? These same sinful ambitions for power, prestige, pride, they should not have a hold, a grip on the church. But the problem for the Christians that James is writing to is that it did. Their selfish ambitions had created division, conflict, and unhealthy interpersonal relationships within the church. And if we're honest and realistic, we're gonna have that same temptation, right? Like these same dangers can absolutely impact North Lake Bible Church. 
So let's read just to get us again that ramp up to where we'll be this morning. This morning we're going to focus on verses 7 through 12 of James 4. But let's just look at verses 1 to 4 and see kind of the path that we're going down here. James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. You see, James gives us this causal connection here between uh, an ambitious love for the world, a desire for the things of this world, this sinful ambition for self-glorification leading to strife within the church, leading to sin within the church. And this is a principle that's throughout the New Testament. Think about what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You see, John's going to, you, you can see that same connection there in what John is saying between loving this present sinful fallen world system and the sinful selfish ambitions that it stirs up within us. And, and these sinful ambitions lead to conflict within the church. But you see, John learned this from Jesus, right? Think about Matthew chapter 20. See, John, his brother James, a different James than the one we're looking at this morning, but his brother James and, and their mother come to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, we want a very prominent place in your kingdom. Give us a prominent place. And what does this instantly do among the disciples? This selfish ambition on their part, what does it do? Instantly causes strife. The other disciples are sitting around thinking, well, what's, what's with these guys? What about us? You know, now these selfish ambitions have driven a wedge between the disciples and Jesus says, hey, stop. These types of selfish ambitions, this is what the world loves and seeks after. You're acting very worldly. It is not how the people of God, my disciples should live. Friendship with the world, this love for the world, they're the things that uh, tempt us even as believers and they lead to worldly sinful ambitions which James tells us in James chapter 4 causes strife within the church. But God is so gracious. His word is such a gift to us. It's such a, it's such a gift of grace because he also gives us the answer. He points us to the problem, he points out the problem, and then he gives us the answer. The second half of verse four in James four through six, he says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. God, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is what James is going to expand on this morning in verses 7 through 12. He's going to show us that this submission to God, this submission to God is the key for us to have peace within the church. The, the theme for this morning from verses 7 to 12 is that James teaches us that peace exists in the church when its members have hearts of humble repentance and trust in the Lord. The first thing I want to focus on, because he's going to get us back to relationships with, with each other within the church. That's where we're going to ultimately end up. But it shouldn't surprise us that a right standing among one another within the church starts with us being in right standing with God. 
healthy, loving relationships within the church are a natural outflow of us individually walking in obedience to God. And so that's really where he's going to start in part one here, our behavioral dispositions, verses 7 to 10. Let me read those for us here. Because we can't be right with one another until we are right with God. He says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. When we talk about our behavioral dispositions, the first one he gives us here in verse 7, submit, therefore, to God. Submit to God. That is an absolutely profound statement because it's short and it's easy to say. And when you're reading your Bible in the morning, you just read right over it, right? You know, you're reading through your paragraph. But as I type those notes, submit to God, I really couldn't get over how much meaning is packed into just those few words. Submit to God. It is literally the answer to everything. There's, there's no aspect of life that isn't addressed and answered by this phrase, submit to God. Our problems start when we stop submitting to God. That's where all our problems begin. That's where all of history's problems began. We stopped submitting to God. It just struck me. I was like, I typed that and I was like, wait a second. That, there is a lot there. That is profound. That is the answer to everything. Stop loving the world. Stop pursuing the world. Stop being consumed with worldly ambition. James has told us this is the source of strife in your life and in the church. It brings you into opposition to God and to one another. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble so submit, therefore, to God. The second behavioral disposition he gives us here, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is your adversary, the accuser, Satan. Now, is Satan powerful? Absolutely. You bet. Satan is very powerful. His usage of demons the spiritual forces that he uses in this world in opposition to God and the church, they are powerful. He has tremendous influence in this world. But is he sovereign? Is he absolute? Can he do just whatever he wants? No, 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 not at all. Even this extraordinary power that Satan exercises is under the sovereign watch and control of God. And it is very, very temporary. It is very, very temporary. Satan is absolutely nothing compared to God. All the power of Satan, and as great as it is, will be done away with in a single breath the very instant that God chooses. When the time is right in God's perfect timing, it will instantly come to an end. And as powerful as Satan is, guess what? As a Christian, you are not a slave to him or sin. Now, before you are a Christian, yes, you are a slave to sin. You are born spiritually dead and there's nothing you can do in and of yourself. But in Christ, you are set free from that slavery. As powerful as sin and temptation is and as powerful as Satan is, you are not a slave. The Holy Spirit, literally the very Spirit of God, God himself, literally dwells inside of you as a believer in Christ and is at work in you every single instant of every single day, even while you're asleep, 
to shape and mold you into who he wants you to be and give you victory over sin. You can choose as a follower of Christ to live by the power of the spirit and you are not a slave to Satan, demons, or sin. You can resist the devil. And James tells you here, the devil will flee from you. Now, how do you do that? How do you resist the devil so that he may flee from you? And I'm gonna open it up to some ideas here. I'm gonna give you one incorrect answer here is you don't rebuke him. You're not into rebuking Satan. In fact, there might be others. I didn't do an exhaustive search or whatever, so don't come at me if like, hey, you forgot these. Like, Zechariah 3.2 is the only place I can think of Satan being rebuked, and it's God doing it, okay? Um, and so rebuking Satan is not the answer. How do we resist the devil so that he will flee from us? What are some ideas? Recalling scripture, diving into God's word. It is the sword of the spirit. It is the number one weapon we have against Satan. First and foremost, that is excellent. Run to God's word. Beautiful. What else? And what, I'm sorry, Jesus did that too, right? I mean, remember, that, like, there's not a better example to follow. Matthew chapter four, every time Satan came, Jesus hit him with the word of God. Beautiful. What else? Prayer. Yes. Jesus prayed all the time to the Father. He told the disciples, pray against temptation. Prayer, Jesus tells us, and the word of God tells us, goes right with the sword, the word of God, in resisting the devil. That's great. What else? I think you can just, from a very practical standpoint, what are some of the areas of temptation in your life? Avoid them. You can't do it all the time, right? Like there's some things you can't avoid and sometimes temptation comes. But if you know there's a particular area of your life that you struggle with, this particular sin, Jesus says, hey, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Like take extreme measures. Now we don't have any record of any of the apostles or disciples literally doing that. We know Jesus was speaking figuratively, showing us how extreme we are to take our fight against sin. Avoid temptation in the first place. When you inevitably sin, because we all will, be quick to repent. Be quick to go back to the word of God in prayer. Be quick to repent. Cultivate spiritual disciplines, prayer, God's word. Like, don't wait for things to get wrong. That's what so often we do, right? We wait till we get into a bad spot. And then we're like, all right, now I'm in a bad spot. Let's try to fix it. No, daily, go to God's word. Daily, go to God in prayer. And, and spend that time um, just honing yourself, honing yourself in on walking in the spirit. The church, the church is a great way to resist the devil because we can fellowship with one another and love one another and encourage one another and recognize that yes, we live in a sinful fallen world and we all have our bends towards sin and it's difficult and it's challenging, but this is a place we come together and we are revitalized and, and God uses the, the spirit working between us to energize one another and help each other in this battle. These are all ways that we can resist the devil. And James promises he will flee from us, but he gives us an even better promise, doesn't he? He gives us an even better promise here in verse eight. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, you can't say enough to get your mind around that. You can't say enough. I'm going to ask another question here. Looking for a response. Simple. I'm not looking for like, you know, high level, dusty burst theology answer here. Who is God and what are his attributes? What are, who is God? Creator of the universe. And think about how he did that. Like the universe is complicated. We don't even know how complicated. Every day we find out it's way more complicated than we even realized to start with. And he spoke it into existence from nothing. 
He didn't go find ingredients and like start working on a project. He thought it and spoke it into existence instantly from nothing. That is God. Who, who else is God? Or what else? Or who, who is God? What are his attributes? All knowing. He knows everything. Including, like, he knows me way better than I know me. I can't tell you how many days I sit there and I'm like, Brandon, I don't know who you are. And I don't know what you're thinking. Like, I don't get it. I don't get me. God does. Not, he knows everything. Perfectly. What are other attributes of God? One more, two more. Everywhere at once. Isn't that remarkable? You can't get away from God. No matter where you are and how bad it is, there's bad places to be in this world. Bad places. God is there. If you find yourself in one of those places, this same God we're talking about is absolutely there. One more, one more. Faithful, like perfectly faithful. I mean, think about God, holiness, right? Perfectly holy, perfectly faithful. And he has a infinite track record. I was talking to somebody about that this week. Like, I don't just have to look at my own life and see the perfect faithfulness of God. That's part of what's great about studying church history. It's a track record of God's faithfulness, right? Perfect, perfect faithfulness. Perfectly holy. Perfect in love. We can't understand perfect love. Perfect in love, perfect in power, unlimited power. All these things. Now think about how great this God is. We can't even, we can't even begin to comprehend it. Yet James says, this is the very God who will draw near to you. Do you see why the gospel is good news? Like we make ourselves enemies of this God. We rebel against this God. Yet in his love, he makes the path for reconciliation through his son, Jesus Christ. That is good news. That is just incomprehensible grace and love. This God desires to have the deepest, most intimate fellowship with you. Not only does he desire it, he is actually the one who makes it possible through his son, Jesus Christ. You individually, you personally, this is the God who will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The frustrating thing when it comes to teaching is there's just nothing you can do to comprehend or communicate the bigness of that and the fullness of that. The reality is we'll spend eternity diving deeper into that reality. Our, our God, who he is, and the fact that we can have fellowship with him. By God's grace, we get to spend eternally growing in comprehension of it, and our minds don't really get around it, but there's never an end to growing in that knowledge. Isn't that amazing? We can continue for eternity to learn more and more about the deep goodness of our God. And you start to reflect back in light of that. In light of what James is telling us here and what the gospel is telling us here, you think back to work, like we were talking about earlier. And like people fighting over a promotion, like over a little bit more money, sometimes just over a title, because like they just want people to think good of them. So they just want this fancy title. You think back to politics and it's like stupid. This is birds in the McDonald's parking lot fighting over a french fry, you know? Like what the world strives for and what the world focuses on and prioritizes for us as the church and the people of God, our focus is on submitting to God, which naturally leads to resisting the devil and drawing near to God and experiencing the beauty of fellowship the beauty of God, his presence with us. And it makes the things of this world grow strangely dim. You want to temper your worldly ambitions? 
that cause so much strife in your interpersonal relationships and in the church? Submit to God. Draw near to him. See the goodness of that. And the things of this world grow strangely, strangely dim. If you think just kind of the context here of chapter 4 where he's talking about um, our relationships in the church. A, a, A church... You see where it's a church who's filled with people who are striving to love God more and experience his nearness. It's a church where it's much harder for strife to get a foothold. It's much harder for division to find its place. And the third thing here in verses 8 to 10, for this to happen, it calls for repentance. It calls for repentance. Verses 8 to 10, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. We must see sin in our lives for what it really is. Sin puts us in opposition to God. It it infuses our lives with destruction. It infuses the church with strife. To call yourself a Christian but still be a lover of this world, that's where James says you are being double-minded. Jesus said we can't serve two Masters, you can't love the world and love God. Your laughter, your joy in the things of this world, if you are finding your hope and your joy and your purpose in the things of this world, James says, let that be turned to mourning because your, your joy is in a false thing. Your joy is a false joy. It is fragile. And it can be hard to recognize this sometimes, right? Like this is a Psalm 73 thing. Psalm 73 where the psalmist is looking at the wicked of the world who seems so carefree and happy, right? You can see that um, it's easy to look at the world and see this carefree prosperity sometimes that they have no desire for the things of God. They have no desire for righteousness. They, They love the things of this world and it seems to be going well for them. They make it look fun and easy, but you see, they are in a dangerous and pitiful place. Dangerous, dangerous place because the things of this world are coming to an end. You can build the greatest house you want, but if you're building it on a foundation of sand, it is going to come crumbling down in the day of judgment. Do you realize, so sometimes you might sit back and say, why is it so hard for me to find joy in the things of this world? If God doesn't allow you to find your fulfillment, happiness, joy in the things of this world, that is actually an incredible expression of God's mercy in your life. He is protecting you and keeping you from those false hopes. He's putting up signs around you that says, hey, stop trying to put your hope and find your meaning in these things because they are coming to an end. Put your hope in me. Find your joy, your peace, and your meaning in me. Somebody who has gotten to a place where they, in their hard-hearted rebellion, truly think they are finding their purpose and their joy in this world, they are of all people most to be pitied because it will come to an end. James says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Come see reality for what it really is. This present world is passing Only God's kingdom is eternal. True life, true joy, true laughter. All these things for eternity are to be found in repentance. Verse 10, he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Again, don't lose sight here. All of this is couched in this conversation on how we treat one another. 
these, he's, he's making that connection here how these individual sins, these individual sins of love for the world and worldly ambition, they don't just damage you individually. They are also the things that lead to poison in the church and bring strife and division in the church. It leads to conflict and hardship in the body of Christ. And so James is calling us when we recognize these things, repent, repent, put them off, turn them away. Our relationships in the church and with one another cannot be right until we come back into proper fellowship with God. So it's now in verse 11, James turns our attention back to how do we treat one another? How do we treat one another? And specifically here, he addresses the sin of slander and being judgmental. Slander, being and also being condemning of one another in the church. And hopefully, based on what I already said about the church, that this is the place where we come to encourage one another, be encouraged, to love and serve one another, and kind of re-energize one another for life and the mission that we have in this world, you instantly see how these divisions and the slander and condemnation within the church just simply doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It runs counter to the purpose, one of the purposes that God has for the church. He's already brought up quarrels and conflicts at the beginning of chapter four. And typically slander and being judgmental very much come together with those things. So in verse, chapter, or second section here, verses 11 to 12, our speech about others. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. And he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In verse 11, he starts here with a very straightforward command. Do not speak against one another, brethren. And he also incorporates judging here, being judgmental. And if you've been with us in James, you know he's already brought up the dangers of the tongue, right? He's already brought up um, the dangers back in chapter 3, um, verses 8 to 12. He talks about how uh, not many of us should want to be teachers because in an abundance of words, very often sin is present. And he warns us against just the dangers that can come with careless speech, with our, with, with, with our talking, that we shouldn't be evangelizing and speaking against one another with the same mouth. We shouldn't be trying to teach God's truth and then slandering and speaking poorly of other people with the same mouth. We shouldn't sing praises to God and then with that same mouth that we're singing praises with, turn to slander and speaking against our brothers. James says things ought not to be this way. Now in verse 11, this word speak against, single word in the Greek, MacArthur defines it as mindless, thoughtless, careless, derogatory, unspeech directed against others. Now we all talk, right? And if we're not careful, we see these things come up right? These things, it, require us, it requires us to really pay attention to our words. That's why I love that the word thoughtless is there in the definition, because sometimes it's willful. Sometimes we're willfully being malicious. Sometimes it's just thoughtless. It's a great reminder for us to always be mindful of the impact that our words can have, how easily we can either build up or tear down one another. It's a reminder to be careful with our words. And, and the judgment that James condemns here, it's, it's important for us. He's not telling us don't exercise discernment when it comes to sin. Don't rightly judge sin when it comes, when, when, when we see it in our lives or in the lives of a brother or sister in Christ. What he is speaking against here is that attitude 
of condemnation. Being a potentially, potentially hypocritical but judgmental person. And I think we can all know the difference, right, between recognizing sin and having a right concern for that person in sin and addressing it in that way, but then we've all seen judgment being used as a weapon. Going back again to the strife and the worldly ambitions that seep their way into the church, we know that difference. We know that difference because is there a place Even in a loving, healthy relationship between two people, is there a place for challenging words and conversations? Absolutely. Absolutely. In a loving relationship, when sin presents itself, it should be addressed and dealt with. That's completely biblical. But the foundation there, the foundation that God wants us to operate from when we address sin and the lives of one another is a foundation of love and a motivation for love. And what's the goal? An unhealthy judgmentalism, is that a word? I'm gonna use it, so I hope it's a word. An unhealthy judgmentalism, the goal is to turn it into a weapon, right? To tear other people down, usually for our own purposes. When it comes to the healthy way to deal with sin, the goal is not retribution, but restoration, restored fellowship, and restored love. Think of Matthew 18. We're not going to go there, but I'm just going to kind of walk you through from a high level. Jesus, as he gives us this process of church discipline. This process of church discipline. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, If you know a brother living in unrepentant, hard-hearted sin... It is the job of you as the brother or sister in Christ to approach that person in love, point out the sin, show the sin in love with gentleness, with the goal of calling them to to repentance. All throughout this process, the goal is restoration and repentance. The foundation, the motivation is love. If they don't listen to you, Jesus says, step two, Go talk to one or two other people at that point. And the two or three of you, as a group, go to the one who is living in sin in a loving, gentle way, point out their sin, and again, call them to repentance. It's about restoration. And if that doesn't work, then... It's the job of the church, right? Go to the church. And the church, again, not to tear a person down, not to shame them, not with the hope of putting them out, but with the hope of restoring them and calling them to repentance, urges them to repentance. Do you see the difference there? The difference is motive and purpose. The desire out of love is what is best for that person. What is best for sin is destructive. Sin is corrosive. Sin brings death. If you love somebody, you don't want them caught up in sin. If you love somebody, you want them restored into fellowship with the church and most importantly with God because you love them. That is the process of church discipline, not what James is at all speaking against. And think about the process of church discipline too. There's this principle of minimal necessary pressure, right? Like the goal in the ideal world is it starts with just one person and you alone go to that person and yes, they repent and that's the end of it. It doesn't go beyond there. You don't need to go talk to other people about it. They repented and they are back in right fellowship with God in the church. The slander and the judgmentalism that James is addressing here has a foundation of malice. And it's again driven by this pride, this, this overarching thing that James keeps bringing up in chapter four, this pride and this selfish ambition. And what James tells us, when we fall into the trap of from malice, slandering one another, speaking against one another, acting judgmental and condemning one another, then really what we have done is put ourselves in opposition to God and in opposition to his law. 
We're, we're looking to usurp God's rightful place of authority. It, it's in opposition to God's law because Jesus told us what are the, the two primary tenets of God's laws. Number one, love God, but number two, love one another. Jesus says, you focus on loving God and loving one another, things are going to fall in line. Your life is going to fall in line. When, when we slander and judge one another from a foundation of hate, that couldn't be more contrary to God's law of love. He who speaks, in verse 11, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are no longer a doer of the law, but a judge of it. It's interesting wording there, but what James is saying is that when you speak wrongly of another person in opposition to God's law, you are essentially claiming to be superior to God's law. You're, you're at that point, and this is, you're acting like you're above it. Isn't that what sin really is? It's telling ourselves that, you know, God, sure, he should have the, he does have the rightful place of authority in our lives, but I'm going to make myself Lord of my own life. I'm going to put myself above God's law. I'm going to put myself above God as my Lord. I'm going to take control of my own life. That is what sin is. That is what sin is. James is helping us to see sin for what it clearly is. Judgmentalism is again really an improper imposition of ourselves into a place that rightly belongs to God. God alone has the right to condemn another human being. Now again, in the church, out of love for one another and the desire as a church and as individuals to walk in obedience to God, we act in a discerning way to recognize sin and deal with it, but it's not for the purpose of condemnation. There, verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And we do have to be careful here, right? Because we live in a society and in a world that doesn't take sin serious. That's the reality of it. And the quickest thing, what, what's somebody quickly gonna say to you when you sometimes approach them with sin? Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? Like, you have no place to judge me. Only God can judge me. And like, what's weird is sometimes they'll say like, only God can judge me as if God's got a lower standard or something like that. Ah, I, don't, I think you want to be careful what you're asking for there. Um, I don't think you know. Um, and if we're being honest, when people say, when, when we react in that way, like, who are you to judge me? Don't judge me. Only God can judge me. If we're being honest, and if that person were to be honest, what they're really trying to do is hold on to their sin, right? Like in reality, they love their sin. They don't want to repent of it. And you're kind of poking in areas that they don't want you to poke. That's, so, so, so we, we, uh, we do have to be careful here because that is absolutely not what James is advocating. What James is advocating here, and I hope you see the difference, is that when we address sin in the lives of one another and in the lives of people we love, we should first step back and say, why am I doing this? First of all, slander has no place in the church, right? There's no place, there's not a healthy way to slander one another. There's not a healthy way to talk bad about one another. That has absolutely no place. But when it comes to addressing sin and this idea of exercising judgment in the church, I hope you recognize the distinction here. There is a way to do that as Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 and in numerous other places in the New Testament where we're from a position of love looking to restore somebody who is walking in sin to fellowship. But then what James is talking about here is that condemning attitude of judgmentalism, hypocrisy oftentimes, where we're looking to wield that as a weapon and tearing one another down. Judgment or condemnation is not a weapon 
that we should use in our fights over selfish ambitions and pride. Like Jesus said, love one another. This, this foundation of love, it motivates our speech towards one another. And when sin is present, our goal is restoration. So how do we apply this? I think number one, overarching for at least the first half of James chapter four here, love the church above yourself. Love the people around you above yourself. How do we do that? What are some ways, and I'll, I'll open it up, what are some ways we love the church and others above ourselves? Yes, practical caring and investing in the lives of one another. Uh, like, are there practical needs that should be met and need to be met among us? Yes. There's people in different financial positions. There's people with different diseases, people going through different physical circumstances in life, different emotional circumstances. They've lost loved ones. There's tremendous needs among all of us. Again, we live in a difficult fallen world. We are strangers and sojourners through this world. This is not our home. Our home, our kingdom, our citizenship is in heaven. We're not there yet. And it's kind of tough road getting there, right? And so practically loving each other and meeting those needs, which has the double effect of not just practically meeting the need, which is awesome, but even more importantly, encouraging one another along this road to our eternal home. I love it. That's great. What else? Yeah, serving. There are so many ways to serve. Like I think like we were talking about on a practical individual one-on-one -on -one level, but just greater service to the church. Are there not tremendous needs? Look at everything that goes on around here. It takes a lot of work, right? None of this just happens. It is a lot of people investing in the church and sacrificially serving the church. The people who set up this morning, I'm sure they'd love an extra hour to sleep right? They sacrifice to be here and love the rest of us and serve us. I love it. What else? Well, maybe one more. I love that. Like it goes back again, just to the purpose of the body of Christ, nurturing one another and building one another up. That, that is why God designed it and called it the body of Christ because one member supports and nourishes the other. Find ways to do that. When you come to church, don't just show up, but there's many people around and they all have needs. Get to know the people around you and think, how can I love them? How can I pray for them? How can they know that I love them and am praying for them? And if somebody tells you, hey, I've got this trip like in two weeks and I got to go do this hard thing. When they walk away, pull out your phone, make a note. So when you get home, you can write it down on your prayer sheet and remember, pray for them. And then in two weeks, when they go on that trip, send them a text, say, hey, just wanted you to know I love you and I'm thinking about you and praying about you. Find ways to Love those, serve those who are around you. Love the church above yourself. These things all require, so James is talking about these selfish ambitions, right? We're naturally focused on ourselves. All of these things require us to step back, take the focus off of ourselves, ultimately put our focus on Christ, and then start loving his people the people that he puts in our lives. And you think practically. So James is telling us, look, your selfishness and your ambitions lead to division in the church. Kind of makes sense how the other approach leads to peace and harmony and love in the church, right? Number two, take sin seriously in your own life. You know, I think, again, the context that James is really focused on is our interpersonal relationships. But when he talks about verses six, seven or so through 10. Like this is the approach that we should take to sin anytime it pops up in our lives in any form, any form. Like submit yourself to God, repent, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. God will draw near to you. Mourn over your sinfulness. Recognize sin for what it truly is. 
It is putting you into opposition with God and the body of Christ. It is a destructive, evil force in your life, but you're not a slave to it. You are not a slave to it. God has redeemed you from that slavery. And number three here, and maybe a little bit repetitive, but I think it's worth pointing out, let your speech be edifying. Let your speech be edifying. Such a great opportunity we have, if you think about it, to encourage one another, right? Like we, we all got to go to work tomorrow or take care of families or take care of elderly parents. We all have probably something difficult to do tomorrow, right? Like let this be the time where we refocus one another. Hey, whatever your difficult thing is you got to go do tomorrow, God is with you. Do it to his glory. Do it to, I, yesterday, this is in my notes, so who knows. Yesterday, I was, we went to, the, Alejandro took all the youth leaders to this swimming hole thing. And if you know me, I hate water. Like, hate it. You couldn't take me to a worse place. But there's some stranger there, some guy who walks up to me and he's like, this water is uncomfortably cold. And I was like, yes, it is. And he's like, I think we feel each other. And I was like, yes, we do. And he goes, you know, I love you and God loves you. And he walked off, no idea who this guy is. But I mean, just if we can do that with strangers, how much more should we do that with one another in the church, right? Find ways to build one another up. James tells us a lot about the power of our words for good and for bad. Again, we're not a slave to the bad. We have a choice. Let our words build one another up, encourage one another. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for your goodness that you show us so much of your character and you reveal so much of yourself to us and we're just really blown away by the fact that we can have this fellowship with you. And I just pray that we would never get too comfortable with that. We would never get complacent with that, but we would always recognize the amazing, beautiful thing that it is and that it would be the joy and the happiness that we have in life and that we would share that joy and that happiness with one another, encourage one another, love one another, and serve you. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.